0: Thanks. Yeah, I'm still in a bit of a buzz from that praise and worship. That was phenomenal, guys. Really. Um, yeah. So thanks for having me. Um, my name's Mike. If you, I'll uh, just introduce you to my family. If you can put my family picture up. Um, we from Hillcrest. We go to Olive Tree in Cluve. And um, yeah, that is me with a beard. I had to shave it. My kids insisted that I shave it. I said, "Don't give me kisses anymore." So. That's me, my wife, and two kids, Mila and Annabella, 10 and 8. And, um, yeah, we're really blessed to be in Olive Tree community. It's an amazing church. Um, yeah, so as, um, as you know, my surname's Saltwiedel. It's German. And my wife's maiden surname is Tsimbukis. So we got a bit of an um, argument whether she had an upgrade or a downgrade in surnames when she married me. <laughs> So, I'm German, my father was German, my mother was Irish, and Vicky's dad is Greek and mother Afrikaans, so we're a bit of a mixed masala. (laughs) Perfect for the rainbow nation, South Africa. But we say we're proudly South African, we're both born here. Um, Especially now that we won the Rugby World Cup, we're definitely proudly South African. Um, Yeah, so, my dad um, was German, he was actually a stowaway on a boat. When he was 14, he was a stowaway. He ended up on a ship, and he became friends with the captain of the ship, so he didn't get asked to walk the plank. He survived the ship, and he ended up in South Africa, and um, he stayed here for a while, and then he went back to Germany. He finished his studies. He came back to South Africa, and he met my mom here um, in South Africa, and we were born here in Johannesburg. My dad was, he was a very good football player, he played for, or he was involved with the Cologne soccer side in in Germany, and um, I really looked up to him, he was an awesome dad, Uh, he taught me a lot of stuff, um, especially soccer, Uh, he ingrained it into me, so I love soccer. Um, But yeah, he died when I was quite young. I was eight years old, and I remember that day like it was yesterday, um, I'm just going to get my, Vicky's very brave, I'll just get my little tissues here ready. just think. <laughs> But yeah, my dad, he, um, I woke up that morning, he used to go to work very early, he started his own business, and um, yeah, I woke up, he used to leave very early before we went to school, and that morning I woke up super early, I was eight years old, and I went into the lounge, and he said, my boy, what are you doing up so early? So I just said, dad, I love you, and I just gave him a hug. And that was the last time that I saw him. Um, And it had a big impact on me. He died in a car accident. (sighs) He died in a car accident. And, um, yeah, I never saw him again. And that had a big impact in my life, losing my my earthly father. So my mom had to take up a couple of jobs. So I never really got to see her much in the day. So my sister was five years older than me. And um, we used to basically look after ourselves in the afternoon. And my sister, being a bit older, she used to get up to a lot of no good. And I remember the first time I smoked a cigarette. She was 13 with her friends, and I was 8. And she said, you're going to smoke now, so that you don't tell mom that I smoke. So she forced me to have my first cigarette at 8 years old. But I did manage to get through primary school um, a little bit unscathed. Um, I managed to get to high school, and then... My mom met, um, she got remarried to a guy from Holland, a Dutch guy, and um, she sent me to boarding school in standard six or grade eight as it is, and I was there about six months, I hated it, I ran away from my first high school, I was 13, Um, and then she took me to another school, Jeppy Boys High School, and I was so rebellious, I don't know what it was with me, but I just started making wrong choices, hanging around wrong friends, and I don't know the, the story. She doesn't tell me exactly, but my grade, my standard seven teacher physically picked me up and threw me out of the classroom, and the school called us in, and then she removed me from the school. Um, so my father, and my stepfather was from Holland. My mother decided that she's going to move us to Holland, so when I was 14, we moved to Holland for the first time. So my my stepfather said to me, he knows that I'm going to smoke dacher in Holland. So I thought that was a very weird thing to say to me, but it actually ended up being true because in Holland at that time, even as a kid, 14 year old, you could go into a bar and order in a nice glass case rolled up uh, uh, weed. And that's the first time that I smoked weed was 14 years old in Holland. And yeah, it was very nice. I enjoyed it. It just made me laugh. It was good fun, um, spending time with friends. And I always seemed to make the wrong choices. The friends that I hang around with and the things that I used to do from a young age, I used to do that. And um, yeah, so I was there about a year. And then one day, I never came back. We ended up in some forest in Holland, getting high. And I didn't come back for like two days. And eventually when I came back, my mother freaked out and she said, okay, Holland is a problem. Let's move back to South Africa. (laughs) So we moved back to South Africa and I went to England High School. So this was now my fourth high school that I went to. Um, And I had some good friends that uh, got involved in sports again, in soccer, in rugby, whatever, had good friends. But there was also bad friends. And I always seemed to go towards the bad friends and make the bad choices. And I was there for about two years. We used to, bunk school, we used to sneak under the fence and one of my friends had a house right on the other side of the fence and we used to get high. And the one day, I made a big batch of dacha cookies and I took them to the school and the whole art class got (laughs) high. Nonetheless, my mom called me, they called my mom into the school and the principal politely told her, if you take your son out, we'll pass him, otherwise we fail him. So she took me out and we moved again to Durban. So this was now the fifth high school I went to. Luckily, I finished, managed to finish my matric here in Durban. I went to Cambridge College in Smith Street and Durban was still pretty much okay to walk around in. So I finished my matric here. Uh, but I never used to get on with my father, my stepfather at all. We used to clash all the time. So it was two weeks after I finished school. I had 1,500 Rand in my pocket, my passport, German passport, luckily, I could get out of here. And I decided to go overseas. And um, I ended up in London. So I was 18. And um, I stayed in a digs with a lot of other South Africans, New Zealanders, Australians, and the first night I got there, they were having a big party on ecstasy. And I was like, what is this? And I said, no, try it. Said, it's very cool. So I'm like, okay. So I tried ecstasy for the first time. And I got very involved in the club scene in London. So we were basically working, doing whatever odd jobs we could do. And then on the weekend, I would be taking ecstasy, schnaffing, cocaine, doing whatever I wanted, basically. Um, It was at this time that my mom uh, moved to Holland, back to Holland with her um, husband, my stepfather. And I decided to go stay with them for a few months just to try and sort myself out. So that's what I did. But we started clashing again. So I said, no, I've got to get out of here. Back to South Africa. I wanted to go. And this was quite a big choice because I had my good friends in South Africa and the bad guys. (laughs) So I actually phoned the wrong person. I phoned the bad guys. I said, can I come? And he said, yeah, come stay with me. It was just, his name was Warren, just him and his mom were staying. And um, I went back to South Africa. I actually almost didn't get there because I was flying with Turkish Airlines. And I got so drunk on the plane, the Turks actually threw me off the plane. Had to cancel my flight. And then I rebooked again and I eventually got back here. I actually wish that I never came back here because the day I got off the plane, he picked me up from the airport. I still had my bags in the back and he said, we're going to Hillbrow. So I said, what are we going there for? So he said, no, now you're going to try the real stuff. So we went straight to Hillbrow and I met Snoop Doggy Dog. He was my dealer. <laughs> okay, his name wasn't really Snoop Doggy Dog, but that's the name that he told me. and. Um, Yeah, that's the first time that I saw heroin and crack cocaine. And um, I smoked it, um, put it on some tinfoil, smoked the heroin, smoked the crack crack cocaine, and I got completely addicted from there. And I was staying with him and his mom. Um, I had no family here, and um, yeah, I got completely um, addicted to, to that high. Obviously it wasn't working, so the thing that we used to have to do is we used to go to like indoor soccer, steal phones. I used to go to like City Lodge Road Lodge, ask him to make a photocopy for me, jump over the counter, steal money out of the cash register, whatever I could do to get money to, to use and to buy more stuff. So it was about six months or so that I was with um, Warren and his mom. And eventually his mom figured out what was going on. They moved to Australia, and I was stuck with nowhere to go. So the only place I knew where to go was to Hillbrow. It was at this time I met a guy, his name was Rob, and um, he introduced me to credit card fraud. Um, So what he used to do is he used to get stolen credit cards from street kids or wherever, and you could still use a credit card for maybe three or four days under a limit. So I used to use a credit card, buy nappies. So if anyone wants to know anything about nappies, I'm your man. I can tell you anything. We used to buy nappies. We used to buy cartons of cigarettes. Sell them to the shop, get money, and then make get our fix. That's how I used to support my habits. Um, so one, once I moved into Hillbrow. The dealer just used to organize me credit cards. I stayed in the Marco Hotel, which was literally a couple meters away from the dealer. And I used to use credit cards to, to get my money. If I didn't have credit cards, I tried other things. I tried housebreaking, but as you can see, I'm quite tall. I couldn't get into the windows, so that didn't work for me. I had to stick to the credit card fraud, or we used to have to try hustle for money. So you see a lot of that now, guys on the streets hustling for money. I pretty much think we invented that in the beginning, hustling for money, trying to make stories just to get a fix. So on one occasion, I was busy walking from the Mark Hotel to the Sands Hotel, so it's probably about 100 meters. It was quite late at night. It was probably about three or four months I was there. And as I wa- was walking, a car pulled up to me and four guys jumped out. I had, I think, hundred grand on me. And um, they started trying to pull me into the car. And in my craziness, I started trying to fight these four guys. Eventually, he pulled out a gun. He was holding it to me. And that didn't even stop me. That's how crazy I was to get my next fix. Eventually, they hit me on the head with the gun, pulled me into the car, robbed me, and threw me out of moving car. And the only thing that I could think of was where I'm going to get my next money for my next fix. That's how deep I was in this addiction. So, probably about six months I was on the streets it was the first time I got arrested. I, um, I went to, it was quite late at night, I went to a couple stores that I used to go to, 7-Eleven or wherever. And as I gave them the card, the guy went into the back and he was obviously phoning the police so it took a bit longer than normal, so I started trying to run away. Next thing, the owners of the store grabbed me, and they started beating me with sticks, and I got arrested. And I got sent to Sun City. And this is not Sun City, the casino. This is Sun City, Johannesburg prison. They used to call it Sun City because everything works with money there. If you don't have money, it's very difficult to survive there. So the first time I arrived there, I had very hectic heroin withdrawals. And heroin withdrawals are like having um, extremely bad cramps throughout your whole body. Your whole body gets into an extreme pain, and you can think of nothing else but using. So I got put into a cell of about 70 people. This was in the late 90s. I was the only white guy (laughs) in a cell of about 70. And um, I slept on the floor on a blanket. And I had extremely bad withdrawals. The next morning I woke up, I was covered in bites because those blankets, you get body loss. So they get into all the pieces of your clothing. It was the worst experience I've ever been through. Not only that, um, you know, I was, I think I was really hated in that cell. I used to get told vuka umrongo, kick me shagisha. I used to have to go and polish the floors like that with my bites and the... Uh, Withdrawals, it was honestly the worst experience I've ever been through. But it didn't stop me. Luckily for me, uh, some guys took a liking to me, some armed robbers. I never thought I'd say, (laughs) say that. But some armed robbers from Zimbabwe took a liking to me. They managed to give me a cell phone to use, and I tried to make some calls. Eventually, I got hold of my sister, who got hold of my mom in Holland, and she flew down from Holland. And the first time she had seen me in a while, she saw me in the, in the waiting room at prison. The tears were just streaming down her eyes. And I felt extremely bad. So she helped me. She got me a lawyer. She got me. I got a suspended sentence. And I got sent to Noput Christian Care Center, which is a big rehab in the middle of the Karoo. And I arrived there, and um, this was the first time that I'd witnessed or seen anything relating to God. I'd never known God before. And I saw these guys, but I didn't really understand. It was foolishness to me. Like it says, the message of the cross is foolishness. To those that are perishing, it was complete foolishness to me. I saw a bunch of drug addicts, praising God, speaking in tongues, and I thought, these guys aren't serious drugs, I'm definitely not staying around here. So I ran away after about two months, and I went back to the streets. And that's where I stayed for the next five years. So, yeah, most of the time in those streets, I was arrested many more times. I went to Sun City about three more times. I went to Roodaport Prison once. The 26ers stole my shoes. There you don't sleep with your shoes on. You've got to sleep with your shoes under your head. I woke up with no shoes. I left there barefoot. I went to Modderby Prison. I went to Atridgeville Prison. I was in and out. Those times that I got arrested probably saved me in the long run because... I managed to have a bit of clean time, but uh, I all it was doing was just delaying the inevitable, which is I was on my way to death. One time I got sentenced by the court to Michalisburg Rehabilitation Center. Um, this was a really difficult story for me because I met somebody who was a kid. Okay, I was a kid, but I mean he was younger. And um, I managed to convince all the other addicts there to give me their money. I was going to go score something and come back. So they trusted me. They gave it to me. And I took a kid with me from Pretoria, and we ran away. And we ended up back in Hillbrow. And um, he overdosed in front of me. Yeah, so that was really tough. So I started sparking, uh, started sparking heroin after about two years of use. And um, I overdosed myself. And I can't remember much of that incident. But I just have a vision of two black ladies in that room. And I mirac- miraculously survived that overdose. To me, it was like angels from heaven. That were in that room and I overdosed. I got hit by a car running away from a dealer. I got hard, I got robbed by knife point two or three times. And the stories go on and on. But one thing that happened is one thing you never do in Hillbrow or anywhere is you never rob an Algerian. That is like a death wish. I've seen guys, friends of mine with their heads being smashed in with rocks. I've seen it. I've seen somebody thrown off a building in Hillbrow landing right next to me for stealing from a Nigerian. And so desperate was I, I decided to rob a Nigerian. I phoned him and I made a huge order to collect. As he gave it to me through the window, I grabbed it and I just put foot and I drove all the way to Cape Town. And um, we just used, it. it was me and two friends. We started driving. And every garage we stopped to I used to just try and hustle some money for petrol. And at one garage we stopped. Um, we didn't have any money, didn't have anything to do. So I said, okay, guys, what we're going to do? We're going to tell them to fill up the car. As they go to the card machine, we're just going to put foot. So that's what we did. And as I put foot, I just heard a lot of screaming and an axe came through the window Narrowly missed me. How I survived that, I don't know. And then on top of that, we got chased by uh, taxis. But we survived it. We got away. And I ended up in Cape Town for about three months, but I didn't come clean. And I decided to come back to Hilbra. <laughs> I decided to come back to Hilbra and face what I'd done. But thankfully, I got arrested before I had to face what, I, what I'd done to him. That was a saving grace. And that was the last time that I got arrested. I, um, I came out of prison that last time, and I was completely broken and desperate. I wanted a change. So I decided to go to one of the shops where I sold stolen goods to. And I said to the guy, can I please use your phone? I want to try to get hold of my mom or somebody to help me. And I couldn't get hold of anybody. I hadn't seen my mom in probably four years or so. And um, nobody knew if I was alive or dead. Um, And the guy at the shop said, do you really want to come right?" And I said, I do. I know that I'm not going to survive another minute. So he phoned somebody from Raymer South. And a guy came and ministered to me on the street. Um, Look, I wasn't really listening to the words he was telling me. (laughs) I just knew that I needed help and he was going to help me. And... um, He took me to Rhema South and they decided to sponsor me to go back to Noport. And I was like, oi. But anyway, I needed the help, so I said I'll take the help. And um, I was still an addict, so they actually had to lock me in the basement of that shop and just feed me some drugs just to get me through, and so they got me onto the bus. And um, yeah, this picture of me, he actually took a photo That's the picture of me my last day on the streets. So that jacket, I actually had a vest under there. That jacket, I stole it from a street kid just to keep warm. (laughs) And a couple of things that he gave me to get me on the bus. But you can see the only good thing about that picture is I did grow into those ears. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you can take it off. It's quite an embarrassing picture. But... um, Yeah, so I went to no-put again, um, and this time was different. Um, I had my heart was soft, and um, I arrived there. They shaved my head off, shaved my hair off, gave me new clothes, cleaned me up, and um, yeah, I survived that night, and the next morning, I bumped into uh, Vicky. But before that, I'll just tell you, I had met Vicky once before. My wife um, was in Hillbrow, probably two or three years I was in Hillbrow. And she she was pulling moves, I was pulling moves, and we bumped into each other. She was hitchhiking uh, to steal a phone or whatever, and I said, can I come with? And she said, yeah. And she jumped in the front, and I jumped into the back. And while she was talking, I was scratching. And we found a whole lot of cash and phones and whatever else. And we got out, we split it, and that's the first. So if anyone asks how I met my wife, that's the story i got to tell. <laughs> but anyway, she was moving with her own people. I was moving with my own people. But then the second time I saw was this next morning that I arrived in Noport. And she came, she gave me a hug, and she bought me a chocolate. And I was very grateful for that. Um... But she wasn't ready to come clean yet, so the next time I saw her, she said, do you want to run away with me? (laughs) And I said, no, I can't, I have to stay here. And um, it was probably two or three days after arriving there, um, the pastor preached a message, Pastor Sophos, he was a big Greek pastor, uh, also an ex-addict, he was actually Involved in gangs and a whole lot of stuff in Durban. um, Amazing testimony as well. And he preached his message on Deuteronomy 30, verse 16 to 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore choose life that you may live. When I heard that message, it was the 10th of January, 2003, how completely, everybody had given up on me. My family had given up on me. Friends had given up on me. Everybody had given up on me. But there was one who never gave up. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I had my heart had been softened a little bit, and I heard this message. And, you know, it just takes one word from God to completely change your life. One word from God. I just got down on my hands and knees and I said, Jesus, come into my life. I can't do this anymore. I need you, Lord. I lost my heavenly father, my earthly father years ago, but now I've gained a heavenly father. I lost many friends, but I had a friend in Jesus. Jesus. I was used to the high of heroin and now I had the ultimate high of the Holy Spirit. I had heard many times the twelve-step program to come in clean, but now there was one step. Who the sun sets free is free indeed. <clears throat> so that was 13 months I spent in rehab, and that was the best not the best second best <laughs> that was an amazing time that i spent 13 months in the middle of the karoo with nothing but jesus with me i got completely you know god loves addicts he loves worshipers it's just who you're worshipping and i got completely addicted to him to the word of god i couldn't get enough of it i had Usually I had hectic withdrawals from heroin. I promise you I had not one withdrawal while I was there this time. My whole body crashed. From using dirty needles, I picked up hepatitis. I was healed. I had TB. I was healed. I had a long list of arrest warrants. It was completely wiped out. That's the miracle of the God that we serve. I had a peace and contentment It was unbelievable what I experienced in that place. My family relations were restored. My mother came and visited me again. I met my niece and nephew who I'd never seen before. God completely restored. And after 13 months of being there, I was very nervous about leaving rehab because I was in a safe place. And then I had an experience with God. So you had to work in this rehab. And my job, it's not on my CV, but I had to herd the sheep. (laughs) So I was a sheep herder. I had to take the sheep out, take them into the fields, and let them eat, and then bring them back. That was my job, and I loved it. But anyway, one day I was walking these sheep back, And in put it's completely dry and arid. And then you'll get like a flash storm that comes in. And as I was bringing these sheep back, we had this major storm. And it was only probably about 20 or 30 meters um, to where they slept, to the safety of their house. And this major storm came. And the sheep just completely stopped still. And I was like, guys, let's go. There's a house. I was kicking them, pulling them, and his sheep completely just stood still. And I was completely wet. And God spoke to me in that moment. And he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter what storm you're going through in your life, no matter where you go from here, I will always be with you. And it was so profound for me. And I even use it now like years later in business or wherever, I always remember that, that meeting with God in that field that day. And I felt comfortable to leave rehab. So after 13 months, I left. And the guy that actually ministered to me in the street 13 months ago offered me a job to come and work. He was in the refrigeration industry, which is where I am now. And he said to me, come and work for me. So I said, Okay. And um, I stayed in a little back room, a domestic court in the middle of Rosettenville. And if anyone wants to know, Rosettenville is very bad, similar to Notewood, full of drugs and prostitution. And I was staying in a back room on a mattress with a two-plate stove and a leaking roof. And I was completely at peace with that. I was extremely grateful that I had a mattress and a two-plate stove and God with me. And he gave me a job to clean shelves in his factory. And he even said to me years later, he's never seen anybody clean shelves like that in his life. (laughs) I just took anything that got given to me and I did it like I was working for the Lord. Um, Yeah, so I actually ended up working for him for about five years. And I left... um, God just blessed me in those times. You know, I met people at church and I used to be in home sales and people used to just come and put money in my pockets and bless me with this and bless me with a car and life was incredibly amazing. And I decided to leave Joburg to come back to Durban because I had a lot of trigger points in Joburg. So even though I was clean, I had a lot of things that were reminding me of my past that I had to get away from. That was number one. Number two, when I got to Durban, What happened now, though, is I was out of community. I had to stay in the community, in the church, and now I was alone. So I started backsliding, not to drug addiction, but I started, I was still smoking cigarettes. I was still getting involved in um, gambling or other types of addiction. Little did I realize that it wasn't the drugs, it was just the addiction that I had to get rid of. So I met Vicky at that time again for the third time, and this was the right time to meet her. She was back in Bible school, or she was in Bible school, and um, we ended up getting married, and um, I went to Bible school as well. And then I realized that I had to cut down all those bridges, all those addictions that I had. So Vicky usually speaks about this, but it's like the Vikings that come in with the boats when they used... (laughs) Spartans, okay. Spartans and Vikings. They used to come in with a boat to attack a land. (laughs) And the first thing they had to do when they arrived at this place was burn the boats so that there was no going back. And that's what I had to do. I had to burn all those boats. I had to get rid of all the things, any sort of addiction things or anything that that I had and I had to focus on. On God, completely and utterly, give Him our worship. And what happened, like when we stopped smoking, for for argument's sake, is when we stopped smoking, um, we Vicky and I never thought we could have kids from the lifestyle that we had. So when we got rid of the smoking addiction, we worked. Vicky fell pregnant with our first child. It was two weeks later we worked out that she conceived. So God really blessed us as we started getting rid of these small addictions and anything that was keeping us back in our lives, the blessings started coming. So, yeah, I just want to end in saying that, um, you know, there is no other way but God. He is the story. It's not about my story or your story. It's about His story and what He has done in each and every one of our lives. And I just want to give him praise and glory. And I just want to thank you for the time that you've given me here today.
1: Yo. <laughs> Man, what an amazing story. I really want to thank you guys for just giving your morning and sharing with us. And again, I can encourage you to go. Listen to Vicky's stories; just as powerful. And uh, just before we close, like I really felt to just speak to this church briefly, and just and just say that, you know, the the dream of, of, of this church is that we would be a place that doors are open for anybody and anyone. And I know that's like a nice, like catchy line to say, right? But the fact that you can hear a testimony like this, hear testimonies like this, and people that carry burdens and addictions. And God meets them where they're at. And he didn't ask much of them. His grace just found them time and time and time again. And, you know, this, this gives me perspective because I think of the stuff I'm wrestling with personally with God. And I'm sure a bunch of you have your own things going on, right? We have our own burdens, our own addictions, our own sins, our own guilt that we carry that we're always resting through and trusting God for breakthrough. And here's what I want to say is that our Father will pursue you time and time again. His grace and His forgiveness will never give up on you. He just wants you to show up. Doesn't need anything from you. Doesn't need you to tick a bunch of boxes. But man, if you just get yourself into position to go, God, can you, will you begin to use my heart and my life? I really believe that there's breakthrough. And so I want us to stand because I just want to pray into this for a moment. And let's close our eyes as we we pray. And so Father, right now, God, I pray that in, in each of our lives, no matter how big or how small it is, will you bring to light the thing that's maybe been getting in the way, Father? Lord, not to bring about Guilt or shame or condemnation, God, but to bring about freedom in your name. And Lord, I lift up those that have walked into this building and into this house today with a heaviness in their heart. And God, I pray that something of Mike's story has gripped them and has given them hope once again that there is redemption for them, that there is purity for them, that the slate can be wiped clean in your name, Jesus. And so, God, in, in all of our own ways, we stand here today, Father, and we just want to say that we are completely surrendered to your will. And, God, whatever we walked in with today, Father, we lay it at the feet of Jesus. And we ask, God, that whatever work needs to be done in our own lives and in our hearts and whatever you need to take care of, God, that we can fully submit ourselves to the work of your hands and that we can trust you time and time again with the process, God that you will make us into the vessels that you want us to be here on earth, God, so that we can not just live lives with you, God, but that we can live lives for you. And Father, that we can take the gospel, we can take the message of Jesus, we can take these stories of hope and we can share them with people around us, God, that we can inspire others, that we can show how the Father can take a person that is down and out and change their lives around God. So, Lord, we, we thank you for Mike and Vicky. Thank you for how they've blessed us today, God. And I pray, Lord, that their story continues to go far and wide, Lord, and that you'll open doors for them to share that they never thought would be opened. Will you bless them? Will you bless their two beautiful girls? And, God, will you be with them as they continue to grow and surrender their lives to you? Thank you, Father. Amen. Thank you, church. It's been good being with you. Grab some tea and coffee. Hang around for a bit. Amen.